We thank you that the wounds of Jesus Christ were sufficient payment for our sins, that in him we have the instrument of our salvation. Christ alone is our hope. Christ alone is the door and unto eternal life for us. Christ alone is our salvation from the sin that would otherwise destroy us, condemn us to hell. Christ alone is the vision and the hope and the purpose that you have now set our lives upon to walk in a manner worthy of our call, to fulfill what we once could not do, to walk according to your precepts, to love your holy word, to appreciate your statutes, to take joy in the line upon line that you have revealed in your special revelation, to exalt you, Lord, with hearts of flame, with overflowing joy, when we consider and set our meditations upon the mighty work moving heaven and earth that you accomplished in our redemption. Lord, you are so worthy of our praise, and we thank you, God, for what you have done. You are worthy of more glory than we have strength to give. We only thank you in light of this for eternity, where our voice will be perfected and sin will be once and for all absolutely done away with, even in our experience. And the weaknesses and frailty and finitude, Lord, that we experience now that plagues us yet in this fallen realm will be washed away. And nothing will remain except that which serves to give you glory each and every detail in a way that reflects your majesty forevermore. We thank you for these promises that are yes and amen in Christ our Lord. Now as we turn to your pure and holy word, as we turn to its infallible truth, I pray that you would conform us to the image of Christ our Lord. Conform us to the image of your Son through the proclamation of your gospel this morning. I pray that you would use the frailty of the vessel that brings this word today, and that you would override my soul's limitations, and that what would be heard is the voice of truth, not the voice of man, and that hearts would be quickened, that lives would be conformed, and that knees would be bowed before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Again, we glorify you and thank you for this opportunity. We pray all of these things, that the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, might be glorified. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. This morning we turn to our Genesis series in chapter 8. So would you turn there with me today? We will consider verses 6 through 22. Genesis 8, verses 6 through 22. The title of this morning's message is Threshold Moment. Threshold Moment. Does anyone know what a threshold is? So I build homes and So a threshold is a common element of construction. Every house has a door. Every door has a threshold. It's that point of entry, entry or egress. That means to go into a house or to go out, across which someone must pass in order to be in that habitation. The threshold of the door kind of represents the distinction, the difference, the boundary between what is on one side of a wall and what is on the other side. Today we have a threshold, as it were, in the ark. In the story of Noah, in the door or behind the threshold of the door of the ark is Noah and his family, but the ark is now landed as we pick up on the story on the mountains of Ararat, and there's this time, this threshold moment, and upon which Moses, or Noah excuse me, and his family will cross over that door and re-inhabit to re-enter the world that has been preserved through the flood. The world that was, once was has been destroyed, and now there's a reborn moment or reborn world that uh, Noah and his family will uh, take refuge in. The aim of this morning's message is to chart the course of Noah's salvation journey, identifying similarities to our own. 
The idea here in my message today, the main idea is to chart the course of Noah's journey at this moment, this, this threshold moment, and to identify similarities to our own salvation journey. Just as Noah was saved from the great flood and the judgment that all the wicked world deserves, so you and I, if you are in Christ today, have been saved from a judgment that our sin deserved in an instrument of salvation. And there will be a threshold moment for us as well where we will cross from the boundary of this life into a new world. And so there are similarities in this account that help us to understand spiritual realities as well. So with that introduction, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's holy word today? And let us consider these scriptures infallibly preserved for us in the Bible in Genesis 8, again, verses 6 through 22. Here we have the holy word of God. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Verse 13, in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters had, were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm in the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As the title of this message indicates, we find a momentous occasion is recognized in our text at this point in the account of the great flood and Noah's survival of the same. Noah is standing, as we've mentioned, on the doorstep, if you will, of a new world. We recognize something similar in our culture related to marriage. It has been, at least in past years, customary for a husband to carry his bride over the threshold of their new home together. I wonder if any of the husbands in the room remember that day. 
I'm pretty sure I carried my wife across the threshold of our magnificent double-wide trailer that I had done some remodeling of, the late 1976 model, and it was a momentous occasion for us. Yes, our house didn't quite meet the standards of a storybook idyllic situation. We camped there for several years before building something a little more suitable for my bride. Nevertheless, what does that moment symbolize? What does it indicate in your life? In spite of whether you cross the threshold into a trailer or a mansion, what we have here is a new family. A new family is formed when a husband and wife join together. We have a joint purpose and a joint calling. When that threshold is crossed, so to speak, we have the hope of future children as God is gracious. We have a new life together, two becoming one flesh, leaving father and mother and cleaving to one another. It is a significant moment. It is a milestone in the life, in the purposes of God, in the formulation, in the formation of that family. The house at that point has become a home. The tool has received its purpose. The area has now been inhabited for that which is for that which for which it is designed. And so it is with Noah and his family at this time. However, the events are just a bit more dramatic than just your average marriage. The meek Noah, as the Sermon on the Mount states from Christ's own lips, has inherited the whole earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. This was literally true in the case of Noah. A meek man, that is, a man who uh, was humble enough to serve the Lord and has strength enough by God's Spirit's supply to buck the culture, to buck the system of the entire pagan world with seven of his family members, construct this ark for the saving of God's future purposes for the whole earth. The meek Noah has now inherited the whole earth as he crosses the threshold of the ark. Significant indeed. And as an event oracle, as we've identified this moment, it should not be uh, surprising that the text contains enduring imagery and themes. Enduring imagery and themes that will resurface at future moments in redemptive history. That is to say that these things that happen in the course of Noah's events, they can symbolize and they're reference points that are helpful for us to understand other threshold moments in redemptive history. Our own in the future, for instance, when we step across the threshold of this life as we've known it into glory, or the threshold of the new heavens and new earth one day, or as we see even in the context of the Scriptures, these covenant moments of threshold experience in God's people, we'll touch on one later in this message where there's the Jordan River, it's swollen at flood stage, it's a threshold, and the people cross and enter into the promised land. Those moments are marked by similar milestones, similar imagery and themes. As an archetypal story, therefore, Noah's experience serves as a model for the grace of God and the plight of man through times marked by both mercy and judgment. The story of Noah serves as a model for the plight of man and also the grace of God through times that are marked by both mercy and judgment. Let me give you a heading to organize our text. It is this, three stations through Noah's flood journey. So a station would be like a position or a moment that is marked by an event or something of the, of the kind. Three stations through Noah's journey. You could say three major movements in the text as we've read this morning. Number one, a faithful waiting. Noah is faithfully waiting for the waters to recede. Why do we say faithful? Because he is waiting in faith that God's promises will be realized, will be manifest, that the waters of judgment will recede, they will go down, and he will be able to exit this 
floating zoo that he has been in with all these animals for hundreds of days. Second major station in the story. There's safe passage and occupation. There's safe passage that Noah has experienced through the waters of judgment, and there's safe passage into the new earth, unto occupation. That is, the new earth will be occupied. It will be subdued by this new Adam, if you will, by Noah, as he takes the seed of the future of the earth's creatures and families with him across the threshold into the new world. The final station is covenant communion. These paths, these stations along the way are unto something. And that would be communion, relationship, covenant bonds between Noah and his family and Almighty God Himself. Those are the three major sections as I see it in our text today. First of all, the first station in Noah's journey, faithful waiting. This comprises verses 6 through 12 in chapter 8 and some prior verses as well. Let's rewind a few just to get an idea of what's happened. Chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah. Let me pause there. That remembrance language is significant. It also appears elsewhere in Scripture. When God remembers someone, what He is doing is He is about to act in accord with His prior promises and word. What we see here signaled in the text is events that will follow God's will and purposes in the salvation of His people and uh, saving them through His purposes of judgment for the unbelieving world. God remembers Noah at this time and all the beasts and livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Now, as Noah faithfully waits for the promises of the Lord to be revealed so that he could inhabit this new world, we see evidence that this is happening supernaturally right here in the text. The word, of course, in Hebrew, as we've recalled before, is ruach. Wind and spirit are the same word. This is an act of the Spirit of God, utilizing, no doubt, a natural wind. But a combination of the two indicate the sovereign hand of God to cause the waters to recede. Someone reminded me uh, since our last message that this happened at another time I failed to mention last time we were in the text. That would be at the Exodus. The, the children of Israel are standing at the threshold of the Red Sea, right? Another momentous threshold moment. And what happens? All night long, a ruach, a wind, a spirit... Uh, a, a spirit movement, if you will, or a spirit a wrought movement happens and the waters eventually are separated over that course of time and a way is made, an instrument of salvation is plowed by the finger of God through this barrier and the floods that would otherwise wreak havoc and judgment upon God's enemies, the people find safe passage through. Unto what? Unto occupation of what? A new world, a new land. Unto what? The worship of the Lord. So again, this pattern is seen in the Exodus. So we have God remembering Noah. He will be true to His covenant. His subsequent actions will be in accord with His holy word. We have His sovereign hand and His spirit working even through the forces of nature to accomplish this by a wind blowing over the earth. And then what happens? Verse 2, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. A sovereign closing and locking, if you will, of the sources of water. The rain in the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth. We read in verse 3, continually, at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, which means receded, retreated. Verse 4, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Note here in our text, 
the location, the docking point of the ark of Noah. This was, sovereign, this was evidence of a sovereignly guided vessel. Now, who piloted the ark through the waters? Was this a sophisticated vessel with uh, navigation devices, GPS, and automated rudder, and engines, turbo-powered, nuclear-powered, or whatever, to guide this vessel to the exact location, the way we try to accomplish through technology today? No. It had a more precise pilot still. The ark was piloted by the sovereign hand of God. Let's not pass this passage of Scripture without noting the providence of God and His precise care in setting that ark down with His two hands, as it were, on top of the perfect resting place. This was a docking station sovereignly commissioned by the Lord. It was ideal for future evacuation and repopulation of the earth. If you just left things up to probability and the forces of nature, that ark would likely bob around for hundreds more days as the waters are receding and eventually settle into the muck somewhere in a valley, in a low point, and what have you. But no, the hand of God was guiding this vessel, this instrument of salvation, and set it perfectly aloft the mountains of a rare rat. And that there it rested for hundreds of days while the waters receded. As Noah faithfully waited, he begins to see the sovereign hand of the Lord, the evidence of the movement of the Spirit of God as the mountains appear above the cresting waves. And his heart is encouraged as he waits. This initial landing and navigation is, uh, indicates the hand of Almighty God. And what are the chances, we might ask, of this ark coming to rest safely on a high point? Slim to none. However, this strategic docking site was purposed by the Lord as the ideal staging ground for future evacuation and subsequent settlement of the new earth. So while Noah is faithfully waiting, he witnesses the hand of God preparing his promises for His promises to come to fruition to come, into a, to come to reality. Second point under faithful waiting. Two pictures. First is judgment. Second, mercy. Remember, we said that the story of Noah serves as a model for the grace of God and the plight of man through times marked by both mercy and judgment. And of all times in history marking, marking both mercy and judgment, Noah's uh, flood stands out among them, does it not? Now, there will be a time in the future where the events will eclipse this whole-scale destruction in the great judgment seat, and, the, and Noah's flood speaks the reality of this day to come, where all the wicked will finally be destroyed, the unrepentant rebels, the pagan world will be no more, and God's people will inherit the new world, new heavens, and new earth forever unto the praise of His name and the worship of the same unto His glory. But at this time, you can see this moment marked by judgment and by mercy. Judgment, proof of the same, is floating in thousands, perhaps millions of corpses of human beings across the surface of the globe as the waters rise and this death has flushed out the wickedness and sin in the world and turned it into so much rotting flesh across the landscape of this huge, wrathful sea. Yet at the same time, God's mercy is shown in preserving eight who will be saved from this whole-scale destruction. At the end, and there's uh, two images that help reinforce this, may I suggest, in the birds that are deployed. At the end of 40 days, verse 6, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Why a raven? Well, perhaps because ravens were uh, signified judgment. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 30. If you'll permit me, I'll use uh, two movie illustrations today. I don't normally do that, but... 
there's just a couple very pronounced images in my mind as I was preparing this message that I wanted to pass along. In the Passion of the Christ, uh, Mel Gibson's interpretation of the events of Calvary, there is a very telling moment, uh, dramatic and graphic and morbid all at the same time. It has to do with the wicked thief on the cross hanging next to Christ, and as the day is darkening and uh, he continues to rail in his demonic rage, even at the point of his very death, a bird, a blackbird, lands on his shoulder and begins to peck the eye out of this uh, criminal, this rebel hanging next to Christ, getting what he deserves on the cross. Uh, what is significant about that? Well, that reference comes from Proverbs chapter 30. Here is an image of a raven uh, associated with judgment in verse 17. It says, The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Again, the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. I'll give you one more reference to birds of prey scavengers. This would be, you'll remember this from Matthew and the account of judgment that will come upon Jerusalem, signaled by the destruction of the temple and surrounding and its surroundings in AD 70. And this is in Matthew 24. Another reference to birds of prey or vultures, so to speak. Uh, Jesus prophesies his coming destruction. And he says in a very telling verse, uh, this, this picture of judgment is very stark when he says in Matthew 24, 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So perhaps as a signal of judgment, a raven is sent forth, and that raven does not go hungry. Why? Because as ravens are wont to do, birds of prey, vultures, uh, and so forth, scavengers, they will feed upon the corpses. That is to say, that the raven would be far more inclined to bring back bits of dead bodies than it would be a plant like the dove did. And in this picture, also we recognize that this bird is unclean according to the law, Leviticus 11, 13 through 19. So many, leading many commentators to surmise that this raven was likely well-fed. Well-fed upon what? Well-fed upon the evidence of the judgments of God, where the unbelievers who laughed in the face of Noah as he proclaimed the word of God day in and day out for a century plus as the ark, the instrument of salvation was being constructed, as they stopped their ears, as they jeered at him, as they made fun of this crazy man building an ark here in a dry place. And eventually, the same voices who cried out, fool, idiot, stupid, what are you doing? I can't believe it. What a, uh, what a crazy idea. Eventually, those bodies float upon the surface of the earth and become food for birds of prey, for vultures, for scavengers, for the raven. This station in Noah's flood journey, this faithful waiting, is marked by evidence of God's judgment as well as evidence of His mercy. Perhaps the raven reminds us of these, or of these pictures in Scripture where the birds of prey will eventually feast on the enemies of God if they do not repent of their sins and turn to Christ and to the instrument of salvation to be spared from the judgment that they deserve. Second picture, mercy. During this time of faithful waiting, we have a picture of mercy in the dove, do we not? Verse 8, Genesis 8. Then he, Noah, sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. This, of course, a clean animal. 
this a dove which is pictured associated with the Holy Spirit, in fact, later in the course of Scripture. She returns to Noah to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Here is a picture of mercy. This dove is a gospel herald, if you will. Gospel in its simplest context means good news. How did the dove bring the good news of salvation to Noah? She did so with an olive leaf in her mouth. She did so with this uh, signal, this evidence of new life, of rebirth on the world. When that piece of evidence came back in the mouth of this gospel messenger, if you will, Noah and his family were encouraged. God's promises are true. The Spirit is at work. We will be able to inhabit a reborn earth. God's salvation has visited us, His people. We have trusted in His means, His instrument to carry us through judgment. And now He is giving us the promised land. And this dove is the messenger that brings news that the earth is springing forth with new life again. The earth is ready to welcome you. In a few short days, cross the threshold of this place where you reside right now into a world that I have prepared for you and for your families to subdue and to inhabit, to be fruitful in, to multiply, and to take care of like Adam was once called to do. Now go, therefore, with this sign of God's mercy in the mouth of my messenger, this bird, from the perspective of God, you know, delivering this message to Noah. Later in the course of Jesus' ministry, you'll remember a significant, or if you will, threshold moment. The moment where Jesus crosses the threshold into his ministry is signaled by a dove which appears at his baptism. The Spirit of God, that is to say, descends on Christ like a dove. And here again is a gospel herald, a messenger. Here again is evidence, it's a picture that could be seen with natural eyes of a spiritual reality, that God the Holy Spirit is present and active, and He is here anointing, equipping, confirming His instrument of salvation, so that all who place trust in Christ as their new Noah, if you will, as their covenant head, will one day enter into a land where the gospel heralds say there is new birth, there is a glorious reality, there's regeneration. There is a new world to come. This is true in our hearts as God gives us new birth and regenerates us and makes us new. We call it being born again. We see that language in Scripture delivered to Nicodemus by Christ Himself. And this is true of the new world that we will inhabit when we eventually cross the threshold as His people ourselves and relate to that experience of Noah in even greater glory still as all God's people cross the the threshold by the power of the indwelling Spirit through regeneration into a new existence, into a new world. Truly, we will experience what Noah once did. By God's grace, the meek will inherit the new world. So we see in this stage of faithful waiting, God has sovereignly guided Noah's vessel. God has signaled His judgment in the destruction of the wicked world. He has signaled His mercy in this picture of a dove brooding across the face of the waters, much like the Spirit did in Genesis 1-2. And then the, the identity of new life or the uh, signs of new life brought back in the dove's gift. 
And finally, we see several groups of seven days reminding us of the creation week. We also have reference implicitly to the Sabbath. The Sabbath is referenced again, of course, all through Scripture. One of the primary references to understand the purpose and intent of the Sabbath comes to us in Hebrews 4. You can study it on your own time. But here the Sabbath is identified as proleptic. That means it's prophesying of future rest. The Sabbath is a day of rest that speaks of a future rest yet to come. And so even in these groups of seven, we have the faithfulness of Noah, the faith of Noah in a future prepared, a rest yet to come, a habitation that God will prepare for him. And then finally, on the appropriate day, after several tries, he waits for another seven days, sent forth a dove. She did not return to him anymore. And so the earth was dry and Noah knew as much. So this is the first stage in Noah's flood journey, a faithful waiting, trusting, believing in the promises of God. I'm sure it got a little stuffy on the ark, and I'm sure it tried the patience of all on board, probably both the animals and the humans. After a while, you get a little stir-crazy after an entire year in a confined space like that, for sure. But the faith of the Lord carried them through, and God gave them signs of His work all the while. Little and slight though they might be, Noah knew something was going on because he trusted and believed the covenants of God. There's plenty of, uh, there's plenty of applications for us today, is there not? How many of us lament a wicked world? How many of us feel marginalized, ostracized like Noah? How many of us feel the weight of the scorn, even implicitly, in a world, in a culture that does not share our worldview and says that Christianity is, is stupid or foolish or backward or oppressive and so on and so forth? And we're basically persecuted by some measures in this society. Other uh, areas of the world are far worse, where persecution comes in very dramatic and physical form, even unto martyrdom itself. But like Noah, it may seem like there are just glimpses and signs in His holy word of His purposes coming to pass. But we can wait. We can wait faithfully, recognizing that this is a pattern of God's work. Yes, He keeps us cooped up sometimes for a long period of time in circumstances which are less than ideal from our perspective. But this is unto something. And we can wait faithfully as Noah did when we recognize the power and the certainty of the promises of God. Wait, hang on, church. Hold fast. You will inhabit a new world. This life is but a breath of vapor. It's gone. Most people live for this life as if it's the best that they will ever experience. And to the degree that they're unbelievers, it certainly is. But for believers, it's totally the opposite. If you know Christ, if He's your Lord and Savior, this is the closest to hell you'll ever realize. But in the new world, hang on, you're in the ark right now, as it were, but in the new world, you will experience the glorious reality of the purchasing power of Christ's blood manifest in every possible way. It will be incredible. Three stations through Noah's journey that help us identify similarities to our own. Faithful waiting. Number two, safe passage and occupation. Finally, Noah crosses the threshold. Notice verse 13. In the 600th year, 601st year, in the first month, the second day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, cross the threshold, right? Verse 16, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons, and your sons wise with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all flesh, birds, animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. 
Verse 18, Noah again exercises obedience. Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. As we've mentioned, safe passage and occupation. The ark was the instrument of salvation. This is similar, again, this is a signal moment. Uh, there are other passages in Scripture that have concepts that remind us of Noah's ark. One of them is found in Exodus chapter 2. Turn there with me if you would. Are there other moments in redemptive history where God's purposes are signaled by a stage similar to Moses, where safe passage is accomplished by an instrument of salvation? Yes, here's one. This is Exodus 2 verses 1 through 8. Um, or let's see. Yes, Exodus 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could no longer hide him or hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes. Now guess what that word translated basket uh, corresponds with in the Genesis 8 account of Noah. Yes, if you guessed ark, you are correct. It's the same word in Hebrew. You could say, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a ark made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds of the river bank. So here we have an ark, an instrument of salvation. We have an occupant, uh, this child set apart by God's purposes for future redemption, um, namely Moses. We have a body of water, the Nile. We have a sister standing at a distance, and she was there to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while a young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. You guys know the rest of the story, I trust. By this ark, bearing up Moses in the waters of the Nile, God used this instrument of salvation prepared by a, a mother who waited faithfully to spare Moses, who God would raise up, not just as a prince of Egypt, but more importantly, so as a deliverer for the people. Moses would be one, like Noah, who would lead the people of God across the threshold of judgment, not only through this water of the Nile as is pictured here, but across the Red Sea, as we mentioned before, which drowned God's enemies unto the threshold of the promised land. But this happened through an instrument of salvation prepared by a faithful mother. This ark, this basket, that was waterproof for the occasion, is a similar picture. It illustrates safe passage unto occupation of a new land. There was a covering over the ark um, that is referenced in verse 13 of Genesis 8. This is interesting as well. It says, And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. So commentators suggest that this was probably something like waterproof skins that were in some way used, utilized in the construction of the ark to shed water. So this covering of skins can remind us of several other points in redemptive history which are symbolic. There's a covering of skins that was, made, that was employed in the tent, the tabernacle, that housed the Ark of the Covenant. There was a covering of skins that the Lord Himself used to clothe the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Again, we see hints and symbols of the significance here, that this Ark as an instrument of salvation uh, prepared to carry the, uh, these safely through the waters of judgment will find its significance uh, later. 
illustrating safe passage unto occupation. Now, once the threshold is actually crossed, we have, who do we have leaving the ark but Noah, his family, and all the creatures that he has spared from the waters? Bring out, God says, with you every living thing that is with you, birds, animals, creeping things, all of these things. And notice this language, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful on the earth, fruitful and multiply on the earth. Later, we'll touch upon this in more depth. This commandment to be fruitful and multiply is featured again. Chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, What? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Young people, question for you. Where was that commandment first given? Who did God say in the very first place to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Who was the very first people to hear that commandment? Good, I hear a chorus of answers. Adam and Eve, you guys are correct. Adam and Eve, much like Noah, inherited a new earth as it were. They were the first to inhabit as uh, human beings this created realm. And God gave them a command to be fruitful and to multiply. He had given them a vocation, a purpose, whereby they would glorify Him and serving His purposes to manifest, to magnify, to trumpet His glory through the course of this whole existence by obediently following His Word, to be fruitful, to multiply, to have children, to steward families, to steward the earth, to take dominion of it, to subdue it, to take care of it, to, do, to be His agents on the earth, reflecting His glory and taking care uh, of, the, of that realm which God had entrusted to them. And so this safe passage unto occupation appears again in our account here. That is to say, God saves us unto something. You know, often we might think, boy, this world is difficult, and I just assume be in heaven. And, you know, rather than suffer all of the difficulties and the trials that attend our way, why doesn't God just bring us straight into glory? Well, it's because we are saved unto something. God has purposes, a vocation for you, a calling for you as a Christian family, if, if you are one, or as a Christian individual in this place today. And it is to manifest His glory by taking heed according to His Word and demonstrating through your obedient testimony to your new Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the way God's Word looks like when it's lived out in obedience in this world. We have a calling similar to Noah's, a calling similar to Adam and Eve's. It's the creation mandate. It's the cultural mandate, sometimes referred to in theology, and it's reiterated here. It's a commission to multiply and to subdue like Adam, after he was made, and introduced to the new world. Safe passage and occupation. Of course, we mentioned already the threshold of Canaan, and we'll touch upon a few verses. So just in anticipation of that, turn with me to Deuteronomy 27. We'll touch on that in a minute. Again, when the people of God approached Canaan, it was the threshold of something unto uh, something else. Notice finally, as Noah leaves the ark, he does so with his families. Not, or with his family. Not just him, though, the beasts as well. Every beast, every creeping thing, verse 19, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Let's pause there and note the significance of this statement. They went out by families. Circumstances were such in the, at this time in the world that its inhabitants were, re, were reduced to the minimal necessary elements thus identifying the very basic building blocks of social structures and cultural 
uh, vocation. That is to say, families are fundamental to the purposes of God in glorifying Himself through the stewardship and maintenance of the world. We find this in our text today. It is implicit. It is right here. The purposes of God, families, are foundational to the purposes of God in the glorification of Himself through the stewardship and maintenance of the world. Listen, Noah could not have landed alone with any ordinary hope for his immediate future. If Noah had not been preserved with his family, he would have died in, and there would have been one generation occupying the new earth. But he landed with his family, signaling that God's purposes through believing families are absolutely fundamental to the continuing plan to glorify himself in the world. Indeed, Noah landed with a set of families who would repopulate and venture forth to subdue the new world. Okay, last movie reference for a while. I watched A Quiet Place last year, and um, you know I don't, necessi- I don't necessarily recommend it, especially for kids and parents who can use your own discernment, or adults who can use your own discernment. But there was something unique about this movie, and it got me thinking for a long time, and it was sort of an accidental, uh, it's an accidental you know, Hollywood step into profundity, I think. And the situation, the plot structure was such that the peril forced everything back to the basics. There, we, caught, we caught up with the story of a family that was surviving in an extreme threat. And what was really intriguing to me is everybody was basically serving in their created order roles. The dad was protecting and providing for his family at home. The mother was nurturing and caring. And, and don't get me wrong, she was strong and capable. And the children were carefully obedient to their parents. If the children were to disobey even a little bit, instant death. That was basically the way the scenario was listed. And on, to top it all off, you know, any noise basically was danger. It would signal immediate death. And yet, the woman was pregnant, and they kept the baby. And there's a moment in the movie that's particularly moving where the baby is spared from destruction in something like a little ark that is floating in a flood. And as I was watching that film, it brought, to my, uh, brought back to my attention by that example, something that we see in the story of Noah. When peril comes, or when circumstances come, when judgment comes, it's a powerful reminder to people of what the very basics are of the way that God has ordered society. You can pretend in a rich, opulent, convenient, uh, God-hating world to be able to reconstruct life and reality in your own image. You can kind of pretend that for a while, but as the war on the family continues, And as the roles that God has ordained for mothers and fathers and children become continually upended, mark my words, judgment will continue. And it may get so bad that it becomes more and more obvious to a people that in order to survive, we had better return to the basics. We better return to the very foundational things that God has ordered and take those things seriously. Because we deny them, we redefine them, we adjust them, and remake them at our own peril. I'm sure that Noah's world experienced all kinds of wickedness and rebellion along these lines, but judgment came. And when it did, the only ones that survived were the ones that valued God's Word and returned to His prescription for survival and for subduing and inheriting a world and living in light of His truth. The law of God sometimes shines the brightest when the harshest judgments come upon a society. It's the silver lining of calamity the silver lining of calamity. And and we may experience that in our day and to some degree, to some measure, we are right now. But just to encourage you saints, 
Even in times of marked calamity, there's an opportunity to shine. If you simply follow God's footsteps, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and try your best to follow Him and seek the Lord's help to faithfully wait, even during times where you are oppressed in an unbelieving culture, He will grant you safe passage. There is occupation all the while, and there's glorious purpose in a life lived under these conditions, and there is a promise that you are looking forward to, and you can shine as a light to your unbelieving neighbors in circumstances like these. Final point this morning, three stations through Noah's flood journey, faithful waiting, safe passage and occupation, and finally, covenant communion. This is the high point of our text. Notice here, the Lord reveals Himself. There's special revelation in view. There is an altar. There is worship. There is relationship. There is covenant language. Verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So Noah has been faithfully waiting for this new earth. He has crossed the threshold into the ark. And what is his first step? What is his first act of obedience in the new land, as it were? To worship the Lord, to offer Him sacrifices. In this act, Noah is recognizing that it was not his idea or ingenuity or his own righteousness that was the key to his salvation. But he is worshiping his gracious God for preparing him a place, a means of salvation, and for giving him the gift of a new life with all these animals after he leaves. These are among the clean animals that he has spared, particularly for this purpose that we read about in chapter 7, verse 2. And what is the message? What is the message at this altar? At this altar, sacrifices are offered. They're clean. They're proper. This is prescribed worship according to the Old Testament, Old Testament symbolic law. This worship recognized that a substitute must take the punishment of Noah and his family, the punishment they deserved, lest they be floating beside their neighbors on the other side of the threshold of the ark. There must be a sacrifice. There must be a substitute offered to take the punishment that all sinners deserve. If not, Noah and his family would have found themselves floating belly up, food for ravens, feeding on the corpses, plucking out the eyes of the lawbreakers, the ones who do not honor their father or mother, but in that symbolic, or in that symbolic reference from Proverbs 30, becomes so much carry-on, so much food for vultures and beasts uh, that scavenge upon the landscape of God's judgments. So, there is an altar. What is an altar? Well, I asked you a while back to turn to Deuteronomy 27. Here's another altar that was commissioned at another threshold moment. And this, of course, is after the crossing of the Jordan, as we mentioned, was at flood stage, unto occupation of a new land. And there was instructions that were given prior to this moment. And these, and there we find these words in Deuteronomy 27.1. Now, Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I have commanded you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that your God has given you, you shall set up large stones. Again, altar-type language in reference here. And plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law. When you cross over and enter the land that the Lord your God has given you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, uh, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. 
And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. And you shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there and shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Another threshold moment. And if you pick up later in Joshua chapters 3 and 4, the people did exactly this. The historians tell us that this plaster and stone situation was something permanent. It would, it would create a monument that would last for generations and generations. And of course, the stones that are gathered for the altar are self-explanatory, there for sacrifice. Similar to Noah crossing the threshold into this new world, it is unto something. It is unto worship and communion. And the first step was to recognize the grace of the Lord and to offer that picture of substitute sacrifice, and then to take seriously His Word, His commands, and His law, to carve them, as it were, permanently on these stones. You don't forget the author and finisher of your faith, the one responsible for the instrument of salvation, the one who has given you your purpose in occupying this new land. We have altar, we have sacrifice, and finally this morning under covenant communion, we have the voice of God communing speaking to in relationship with Noah, his servant. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The Lord is speaking, the Lord is communing, the Lord is revealing himself to Noah in this only continues to unfold as the rainbow promise is delivered. We'll study that in future weeks. This is glorious fellowship that Noah is experiencing with his Savior and Lord at this altar situation, which is by matter of priority is the first act of obedience after Noah inherits the new land. Here we see God himself as Emmanuel, God with us, God with Noah, God communing with his people. This is beautiful indeed. We have the Word, the presence, and the promise, and the hope of God Himself with His people coming to a crescendo, building in this threshold moment in Noah's experience. It's incredible indeed. Today, um, I asked a couple this week, are you enjoying the summer weather? I know I am. Um, I don't mind the first few sunburns of the season because I'm thankful that I'm not outside in 20 below. And, you know, my whole life, the seasons have changed pretty dramatically in this state. If you've lived here for any length of time, I know your experience is the same. But have you ever stopped to consider that as we change from spring to summer, as we change from fall to winter and so on, that is evidence of God's communion with Noah, telling him, just like we read last week in Psalm 93, in as many words, that this earth is established, it shall not be moved. That is to say, His covenant, His promises, while the earth remains, seed time, harvest, cold heat, summer, winter, day and night shall not cease. We complain often about the changing of seasons. I encourage you to take a hint from our text and to thank God for the changing of seasons because this is a memorial. It is part of the altar experience that still yet remains, even for us to witness and view that God is faithful and man does not have power over him. God is the sovereign. This world will not be moved. It is established according to his terms, according to his law. It's not up for alteration or for review or for change in any way, but the world will continue until such time as God will usher us into the new one. A very hopeful 
evidence that yet remains as we witness in a rainbow as well of God's covenant communion with His people. In closing, this was a threshold moment that we've witnessed in our text today. We have faithful waiting, safe passage and occupation unto covenant communion, worship, and the presence of of the Lord fulfilled. This is basically the shape of our own lives, as we've already alluded to several times as believers. God saves us. There's a waiting period this side of glory. It is oftentimes marked with both judgment and God, by God's grace towards us, mercy, but is unto something, obedience to bring Him glory in the between time right now, and perfect communion with Him when He ushers us into glory in fulfillment of His covenant with us, that which uh, every aspect for which Christ died in the future. And so, if you have crossed that threshold in your own salvation, be encouraged. Look to the story of Noah. Look to the story of the Exodus and the entrance into the promised land and glean from that great hope and encouragement that as you chart the course of your own salvation, you see by the record of God's faithfulness to Noah, to Moses, to others, that He will bring you into the riches of His grace. Each step along the way is divinely prescribed, perfectly intended toward that end. And finally this morning, if you do not know the Lord, if you feel lost and aimless, if you feel like your life really has no definite direction, and you don't feel the assurance that if floodwaters were to rise in our day, that you would hear the voice to scamper into the ark that Noah built, you know, the equivalent is open to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Run to Him. Today is the day of salvation, the day of judgment. We do not know when it arrives, but we do know that salvation is provided in Christ our Lord. So come to Him. Cross the threshold into the ark and find in Christ your salvation. He is the substitute sacrifice pictured in this liturgy of old. He is the one who died in your place so you don't find yourself belly up, as it were, with eyes plucked out by ravens on the day of judgment, and justly so. But instead, you will worship the Lord with Emmanuel, God with us, in perfect union and harmony at the marriage supper of the Lamb, joining with the elders who have preceded us, who gather around the throne of glory, singing forever, holy is the Lamb, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory as the seraphim also echo in Isaiah chapter 6. What a glorious future we have in Him. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the testimony of Your Scriptures that echoes forth all the way from the ancient pages of Noah's record, all the way through to the Gospels that we take such refuge in as believers, that there is hope of salvation in Christ alone. I pray, Lord, that we would set our mind and our attention on these truths and it would greatly encourage us to stand strong and to bear fruit in a day, Lord Jesus, that is marked by perversion and rebellion, similar in ways to that of Noah's time, no doubt. We thank you, Lord, that you have drawn us irresistibly by the power of your grace, believers in this room, unto salvation, confession of our sins, and faith in Jesus Christ. We pray that as your word goes forth today, that you will continue to draw the lost unto salvation. And those within the hearing of this proclamation would bow their knee to their Savior, the only way to be spared from the judgment to come. I pray that we would soon enjoy with them sweet fellowship as we gather in anticipation of that glorious day, each Lord's Day, lifting up your holy name and proclaiming the grace by which we are saved. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.